James chapter 4. We are looking at 1 through 12. And it's kind of a topic um, that we're looking at this morning of fighting, quarreling, um, you know. But again, it's kind of the way that James communicates. Um, he he kind of has been touching on these subjects that seem very loose. They seem like they don't really have a connection, but yet... Uh, the way that he places them, he kind of bookends certain subjects to go together. And so last week when we looked at the, the topic of the tongue, uh, about what we should do with it and how we should speak forth and, and how dangerous the tongue can be, but then immediately right after that he speaks of wisdom. And uh, we said that wisdom, you know, there is, is primarily communicated with the tongue. And so James is uh, tying that idea of controlling the tongue to uh, dispensing wisdom and, and that we ought to be wise in that. And he kind of does the same thing here uh, with fights. Fights are often started, you know, verbally. They start with arguments um, and, and quarreling. There's disagreements. And uh, he'll kind of, he'll, he'll tie some of those things in there, but he gives us um, what we should not do there and then uh, kind of makes gives us uh, some, some ways by which we can contrast what it is uh, to, uh, to live and to communicate in a way that reflects either uh, the godly attributes or the attributes of the world. And then he kind of wraps it up again with this idea of speaking again, uh, communicating with your mouth. And so um, the last thing that he told us in chapter 3 was that, uh, speaking of wisdom, is that a, a harvest of, of righteousness is sown in peace by those who, who make peace. He has a call for peacemakers, and the tongue often stirs up trouble, and he's calling us to make peace. And now he gives us kind of that segue here into chapter 4, uh, you know, that, that idea of peacemakers, the need for peacemakers, um, that is kind of underscoring our, our uh, text this morning. Because he starts off in verse 1, uh, and he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Now, obviously, not peace. You know, the, not those peacemakers, but those who uh, are causing some issues. He, he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this first block of text that he's talking about, he's talking to us about this, uh, this fighting and quarreling that was going on, apparently, in the church. These people were not heeding what he had called them to uh, in the previous uh, or, or the end of chapter 3 about being peacemakers, but rather uh, it, James is using that as his basis for here. You know, you should be a peacemaker, and now he goes on to say, what causes these fights? What causes these quarrels among you? Uh, it, when he's, he, he's not actually commenting there, I want you to make note of, on the actual topics of 
these fights. He's not, he's not commenting on the different viewpoints or the sides. He's not trying to weigh in on, well, you know, there's this view and there's this view and here's what I think and here's how I think it should go about. The, the way, the, the things that he says and the way that he communicates, his, his actual concern is more with the self-centered nature of those who are fighting. He's more concerned with the way that they're treating each other. He's concerned with the, the character and the words that are coming forth as a result of these fights. So he says, what causes those things? Not what, what's the argument about, what's the fight about, but what causes these quarrels? What causes these fights among you? And then he goes on to tell us, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James goes on to note that what causes it is that there's passions that are at war within uh, those who are hearing this. And similarly within us, the source of these quarrels, the source of these this fighting uh, among Christians is, all, is, the, is built upon the basis of an internal war within uh, the believer. And he says, it's your passions that are at war within you. The word that he uses there for uh, passions is actually, it means pleasure. That's what he's, he's speaking to. It's, your, it's, your, it's that pleasure that's at war within you. You're seeking, uh, it's a self-seeking type of passion. It's not you're passionate about something, you know, real positive and, and godly, but rather you're passionate about something that is self-centered. And he uses this military type imagery to communicate it. He says that, that there's this war, there's a battling, there's a, 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 way, there's a war that's waging within you. There, there's this great battle within. Your desires have this, your passions, that, that desire for your own self-centered pleasure are at war. And those things lead to fighting and quarreling. But what we're told in Scripture is that not that we should uh, have our own desires, but that we should have God's desires. We should desire the things of God. But that is not what uh, is natural with man. In verse 2, he goes on to talk about those desires. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James goes on to expound now upon the types of desire, these self-centered desires that lead to conflict. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. When he speaks of murder here, he's not speaking so uh, literally of actual uh, killing. He's not speaking so specifically. He's rather uh, you know, speaking uh, in a metaphorical sense, speaking to a, uh, you know, a murdering or a killing with words. But as we know, when conflict arises and when that that anger and when those words uh, are communicated in that murderous sense, it often does lead to actual murder. Those quarrels and fighting do end up leading to actual murder. And so he says, 
you, you, you desire and you don't have. So you, you just take out your words as if they are a sword and you attack one another, you murder. James, ha, ha, and I love kind of what he's done here because he has transitioned um, from speaking of the danger of the tongue, and now he's giving us an example. He's describing that there is a murder with words happening. And this kind of text here is bookended by that all of chapter 3 about the danger of the tongue. And in 4, uh, here in verses 11 and 12, he goes on to speak of the danger of the tongue a little bit more. And so James kind of throws this little portion there in the middle as a, as a connecting thread for us to understand what he's doing here. But even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses murder to express uh, something more than actual killing. He, he uh, talks about the inward condition of the heart, a, a, an outward anger, kind of contrasting those two. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that any, anyone or everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, uh, to the uh, fire of hell. And so Jesus compared that anger within the heart to murder. Jesus compared that that. You know, being angry with a brother, uh, someone who who places judgment upon another, that that um, you know that contrast. He used those to to communicate the serious nature. And James tells us that murder comes about because of selfish desires. It's a self-centered act. The way that that we communicate, the way that we treat one another comes about because of selfish desires. He goes on and he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covet simply is, is to want uh, something that somebody else has. You think that you should, you should receive that. You deserve it. And so you lust after it. And covetousness, it leads to conflict because you're placing your worth and your desire for something or someone above others. You place your judgment upon someone and say, they don't actually deserve what they have. I should receive that. I, should des- I, I deserve that. And so covetousness leads to conflict. Fighting and quarreling leads to conflict. It ends, you know, James tells us here, because of those selfish desires, it ends in murder. But then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. The reason that these, these selfish desires exist within believers, that he's having to speak this to the church, that, that we need to be aware of it as the church, is because they're not seeking God for their needs. They're, they're looking at uh, the, the things that they have amongst each other, and they're desiring to be placed above one another. They're seeking to have positions of leadership. They're seeking to have goods that others have. They're committed to their own selfish desires. So they don't have what they want because they don't ask. If they sought 
uh, if they brought their needs to the Father, if they brought their needs to God, he would meet their needs according to his riches. He would deliver to them what they asked for. Then he goes on in verse 3 to tell them, some of them do ask, he says. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive. So some people don't have because they don't ask. But some people do not receive. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The most literal translation there of that is you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend freely on your pleasure. It's a self-centered asking. You're asking for something that is wholly focused upon yourself. Now here, Jesus, uh, uh, or James is quoting from Jesus what, uh, what he uh, stated again in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 7, when he said, you have not because you ask not. Jesus said something very similar there. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But when Jesus is communicating that, he's communicating, seeking forth that which the Father has for us, not seeking out our own selfish pleasure. And so these people, some people do ask, but they ask God with a purely selfish motivation. But Jesus told us that we should ask, but not to ask according to our own will, he said, ask according to the Father's will. When he gave us the model prayer, when he spoke to us about prayer uh, to the disciples in Matthew 6, 9 with the Lord's prayer, he said, pray this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no place in there where Jesus says, you know, you should pray for your own selfish desires, your own wants. He says, pray first for your will to be done. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. There's a priority that needs to take place. And that's what overall James is getting at here. The, the people who, who are seeking these things, who are praying these things, they're seeking not God's will or God's wisdom, but rather they're coming and saying, Lord, here's my plans, and I want you to bless them. Here's my plan. Here's what I came up with. Here's what I want to do. And I drafted this whole thing so that way you wouldn't have to be involved at all. And here it is. Make it happen. But that is not what we are to do in prayer. We are to seek the Father's will. We are to align our will with his, to discover what he is doing in prayer and join him in doing that. And so because we have selfish, sinful desires, unholy passions, those who are self-seeking desire to spend on ourselves, is what James tells us. The word that he uses there for spend is the same word that is used of the prodigal son, who when he took his, his inheritance from his father. He went out in Luke 15. It tells us there that he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. This is a, a selfish spending, a selfish squandering. I like how it's compared there because it's not 
it's not invested or used wisely, but it's a, it's a very specific type of uh, use of these pleasures or desires that are having they're trying to maintain or to to receive. And so we want to to seek Christ with a singular passion. And that's what James is trying to be to communicate to us this desire for wholeheartedness. We want to have a singular uh, motive to know him, to love him. We want to make God our passion. We want to, to delight in his will and his work. We have to be about the will of the Father as Jesus was. And we can't have our own allegiance to ourselves, which is you know, something that we all struggle with. Uh, creating our own desire, passion, will, and placing that above our allegiance to God. Paul speaks to this in Galatians 5.22. When, when he is listing the fruits of the Spirit, he kind of, he speaks very similarly to this with, about what we, uh, what we should do with our passions. And, and along with listing the similar fruits of the Spirit that we saw in uh, when we saw last week in uh, the idea of taming the tongue, in Galatians 5.22, Paul speaks and he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So those are all things that those would be really helpful in getting rid of fights and quarrels, you know, if you were demonstrating these things. He says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So your desires, your passions, the things that were formerly yours are, have been crucified with Christ. When you become a Christian, your passions, your desires are put to death. Your new passions and new desires are the desires of the Holy Spirit. In verse 25 of that, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step, uh, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And those are the things that are happening in our passage. They're not keeping step. They are not putting to death their passions and desires, but rather are giving place to them. And in turn, they are becoming conceited. They're provoking one another. They're envying one another. They haven't put those things off. And so James now gives us a whole call to repentance. He calls us to wholeheartedness and following Christ in verse 4. Look at it with me. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the prophets, they would, in the Old Testament, there is a long thread of, of them comparing uh, Israel as a nation, as, a, as the spouse, as the bride of God. And, and throughout, even in, uh, in church history, we see that we are the bride of Christ. But in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this great kind of trajectory that takes place and, and, and looks at Israel's relationship with God in terms of uh, a marriage relationship. In, in Isaiah 55, uh, verse, or excuse me, Isaiah 54, 
verse 5, this is what it says. It says, For your maker is your husband, speaking uh, to Israel here, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like the wife of your youth when she is cast off, says your God. So there's this correlation between Israel and God with a marriage relationship. When Israel commits idolatry, uh, she is compared to being, uh, to committing adultery. In Jeremiah 3.20, he described it this way, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Even Jesus picked this uh, terminology up. He picked up this uh, description, and he called those who rejected him a wicked and adulterous generation in Matthew uh, 12. The Pharisees there, they're wanting to have a sign. He says, you know, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You are committing adultery by not being faithful to God. And so there, he, he calls them out. He says, you, you people are an adulterous people. He's calling them out on their uh, failure to be wholehearted in their relationship with God. And then he compares it in a very serious way. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? By having friendship with the world, they're committing spiritual adultery. Now, when you and I think about friendship, we think about it on very simple terms because we have, in our day and age, we have kind of these varying levels of kind of friendship. We often call a lot of acquaintances friends. It's like, oh yeah, I'm friends with these people. Or, you know, if you've hung out with someone more than once or twice, then you might have that, call that person a, you know, a friend if you're trying to get to know them. Or uh, if you see someone in you know, that you, that you work with, you might call them more, you know, more than uh, just a, a work colleague, but they might also be a friend. And our, our, the way that we classify friendship, and it's so much lower than what they did in uh, ancient times. In ancient times, one commentator explained that friendship involved sharing all things in a unity that was both spiritual and physical. So you couldn't really be friends with somebody in a real casual way. If you were to be, to, to declare that you had friend, friendship with someone, you were sharing all things in, in both a spiritual way and a physical way. And so when James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's not just saying like, oh, you're kind of dipping in. He's saying you are building a relationship where you share the, your, your life, you share your spirituality, your, your, uh, you know, your goods and services and everything that you own. You're creating a unity there and you're trying to create a unity with God. And then he tells us that, that the um, friendship with the world it's impossible if you're going to also be friends with God. Those people who are friends with the world, they are enemies of God. He says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that person is an enemy of God because the world is hostile toward God and all the things that God cares about. So you cannot have that type of unity with the world 
and that unity with God and care for both the things that God cares for and are important to him and care about the things that the world cares for and that are important to the world. You have to choose, James tells us. You are an enemy. You're hostile towards God if you are friends with the world. And when believers try to do this, it's really, um, it's actually really sad and heartbreaking because they demonstrate that their allegiance is not, in fact, to God, but it's to the world. It's, it's one or the other, and the world doesn't care if you're trying to play, play, you know, around with both. You know, there's a little bit of flexibility there. But that is not so with God. God is jealous, as it tells us in verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose that it is uh, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that has, he has made to dwell us? James reminds us of the serious nature of this friendship with the world because of the jealousy of God. Uh, an alternate translation of this verse puts it this way. God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live within us. God jealously longs for the spirit he made to live in us. When we become Christians, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within the believer. The Holy Spirit... It dwells within us, 2 Timothy 1.14. And when that spirit is within us, the Holy Spirit, which is God, he, when he dwells within us, there is this jealousy that we belong to God, and so therefore we should not have any friendship with the world. We should be completely committed. It, it, we are to live that out. In Exodus 20, it talks about the jealousy of, of God. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. He's talking to idols specifically, specific idols that they were dealing with. But we, we when we serve the world and when we try to create friendship with the world, we make that an idol. He, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there's a hate that comes from those who are in idolatry toward God. And God is jealous for his people who he has created and has put his own spirit within them. That indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has a, a jealous a yearning, it tells us, for friendship with God, for relationship with God. And so that spirit cries out within us. It, it, it causes us to be convicted and to bring us into relationship with Christ. In verse 6, he goes on and tells us uh, about this. He says, but God, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James says that God offers more grace rather than condemnation to the believer who repents. If you repent of your divided heart, if you repent of your unstable nature, if you repent of your friendship with the world, God offers more grace 
than any amount of condemnation that could come upon you. And here he, he quotes from Proverbs, Proverbs 3.34, when he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, Proverbs 3.34 uh, phrases it another way. He says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So God has the ability and the willingness to overcome our own sinfulness when we repent. Notice there, though, he says that God opposes the proud. That pride it, that creeps up within our hearts, it demands that, again, that selfishness, that, that uh, self-centeredness, it demands that we have our own way. It demands that God give us what we want. It demands that when we come to God with our plans, we ask God to bless what we have put together rather than seeking first what he has for us. But the way that grace works is grace is not given out on the basis of what you deserve, but rather on the basis of who God is. And so you can't ever receive this grace unless you receive it in a place of humility. It's more grace is given to the humble, it tells us. And when we have humility, that doesn't, when you're saying, oh, you know, I'm ready to receive grace because I am, I'm putting myself in a position of humility. When you have that humility, that doesn't earn you grace. It just puts you in a place to receive something. When, when you have that, that humility, you're confessing your need. You know that you cannot do it on your own. The, the humility is not the, the thing that you need to achieve to earn, but rather the humility is the place that you need to be in to recognize your own poverty so that you might be ready to receive what God has to give to you. And so James now shows us what that humility looks like. In verse 7, he says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the first thing James tells us there, if you want to know what it looks like, submit yourself to God. It means to place yourself under his lordship, to commit yourself to obeying him in all things. You put your own passions and your own desires to death. You put your uh, allegiance to yourself to death, and you put yourself under his lordship. You do what he desires. You obey what he says it's what submit, submitting means. And when we don't submit to God, it demonstrates our unbelief. It demonstrates that our allegiance is to ourself. That our allegiance is to our own passions, our own desires, our own fleshly mind. Romans 8, 7 puts it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh, or unbelief, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh or who have this unbelief, they cannot please God. When we don't submit to God, we can't please him. <clears throat> and when we don't submit to God, it also demonstrates our rejection of his righteousness. It demonstrates in, in a very tangible way that we don't believe God to be who he says he is. When we don't submit, it, it highlights that. Romans 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteous of God, righteousness of God in seeking to establish their own, notice, they don't know of the righteousness of God. They have a zeal for God. It looks like it. it. looks like they're excited about God. But they don't know him. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they're seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. When you recognize that God is the righteous judge, when you recognize that God is worthy, when you recognize that God is perfect and holy, when you recognize that God is our creator and not creation, then you will submit to him. All creation must submit to the creator. And that's what he's telling us here, when we should submit to God, submit therefore to God. When we do that, it demonstrates our humility. It shows that we are in a place where we're ready to receive more grace. And then he tells us that when we place ourselves under God's authority, when we put ourselves in a place to, to submit ourselves to God, it also puts us in a place to, as he goes on, to resist the devil. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you are under the allegiance of God, if you are committed to obeying him, when you do that, you will not be under your own sway. You will not be under the sway of the enemy. When you place yourself under God's authority, it means you must also refuse to give in to Satan's authority. When it says there, resist the devil and he will flee from you, it means stand against, oppose, withstand him. One commentator said, Satan can be sent running by the resistance of the lowliest believer who comes in the authority of what Jesus did on the cross. And I love that, how, how he, he connects that so clearly, that Satan can be sent running by the simple resistance of the lowliest believer. Not somebody who claims to be mighty and powerful, but it is somebody who comes in the authority, in that humility, that meekness of recognizing that they can't fight the enemy, but their humility in receiving the cross of Christ gives them the ability to send Satan running in resisting him. Christians have the ability to overcome Satan's power. You and I have the ability to overcome the enemy, to resist him, to resist the attacks of the enemy, to resist temptation through obedience to the word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. When we place ourselves under the authority of God, he has given us everything that we need to fight against the enemy. He has equipped us with spiritual armor by which we might stand fast and fight against that. But in Revelation 12, we're told ultimately that the way that we overcome, and the way that the saints in, in Revelation 12 overcome, is through the blood of Christ and the word of their testimony. It says, and they conquered him, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 
And that last part is important because they loved not their lives, but they were in love with Jesus and their life testified of that. And they overcame the attacks of Satan. They overcame, they resisted because they were not committed to their own selfishness. They were not committed to their own self-centeredness, but they were committed to the blood of Christ. They were under the authority of the blood of Christ and their lives were lived in a way that they had a testimony of that. And they were to be faithful in a way that they did not regard their own lives. So they resisted the devil. They resisted Satan, and he would flee from them. That's what we are to do as believers. Verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this here verse, in verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love this verse because it is both a command of what we are to do, but it's also a promise of what God will do. It is a command and a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's no good. It's not helpful to simply submit to God's authority and to fight and resist against the attacks of the enemy, but then also fail to draw near to God. We have to do both. We have to submit to God, and when we do that, we will be able to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. But then we also have to draw near to him. We have to come to him. This is very, um, again, reminiscent here of this call to return to the Father, this call to repentance, and the, and the same kind of scene that we see played out in the prodigal son. When that son had went and spent all of his money, when he had squandered it on his own passions, after he had done very foolish things, then at, at, in his most humble place, when he was there with the pigs, eating their food, in that humility, he remembered the heart of the Father and then went and returned to the Father. He went and, and went back to the Father. He drew near to the Father, and as he was drawing near to the Father on the road, as he was, the Father saw him coming, the Father comes running to him, and the Father drew near to him. He, the, it's, a, it's an example of what we see in verse 8. Draw near to God. We should draw near to God, and he will in turn draw near to us. And James builds in this call to repentance. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He gives us both this examples of external behavior and internal behavior. Cleanse your hands. It's got this external uh, feel to it. But then an internal command, purify your heart. Both of these are, are reminiscent of things that we've already seen in Scripture before. Cleanse your hands. It's another Old Testament picture speaking of the priests washing at the brazen altar before they go in to uh, the temple. They're cleansing their hands so that way they can be clean when they go in. Uh, you know, it illustrates this removal of sin. And then he talks about purifying your hearts, you double-minded. It's something we've seen come up again and again in the book of James, this idea of this double-minded, 
uh, divided heart, double-souled is what some translations say. He says, we should purify our hearts, you double-minded, you who are divided. Make that heart that is, is dirty, that is divided, make it into one pure, one wholehearted, one singular heart. And so when we allow the world to entice us, when we do not demonstrate our allegiance to God, we demonstrate ourselves to be this person who is unstable, like that wave that's driven and tossed, somebody whose life is filled with disorder. Even the psalmist called for clean hands and a pure heart for those who would approach the Lord. In Psalm 24, he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So there's a wholeheartedness, a sincereness, and then also a correct use of the tongue. Those things all wrapped up in in Psalm 24. And then he tells us what we should do about our sin. In verse 9, James 4, verse 9 as we cleanse our hands, as we purify our hearts, here's what we should do over our sin. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So James calls the church, he calls us to repent and have sorrow over our sin. As we draw near to God, we're going to be convicted of our sin. So you will naturally mourn and weep under the conviction of sin. And when you do that, you remember that you find cleansing you find safety and salvation at the cross as Jesus cleanses your sins at the cross but when we mourn over our sin it it exhibits a repentance that exists in our heart when we demonstrate that we are wretched when we demonstrate that we are mourning it shows that we are sad that we're sorrowful over what we have done and there's a big difference between mourning over your sin and mourning over being caught in sin. Some people try to show that they're mourning over sin, but really they're only upset that they were caught, that they were found out in their sin. And that's not the same. The, the type of mourning that we're talking about is that you're realizing and recognizing that there is within you something that is not holy and pure and like God. There is something that is not Christ-like and that you are sick and disgusted of it and want to remove it so that you might become more like your creator. We should have a godly sorrow over this. Paul speaks to this in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He, he remarks there about how we ought to uh, mourn over the sin that was taking place in the Corinthian church. And then he says something kind of interesting um, that we want to unpack a little bit in verse 9. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and then your joy to gloom. So let me uh, explain that a little bit. It, because, you know, instantly when we talk about joy, I always, you know, go to that childhood song that is quoting Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. 
that will be on loop for forever in my mind. Um, but instantly, my mind goes there. And, and probably for, for most of us, our minds kind of go to something like that. But the joy that Paul speaks of is a joy that comes when we realize our sins are forgiven in Christ. The joy that, that Paul speaks of is enjoying the fact that we are members of the household of faith, that we have been saved, that we're enjoying God. So what First uh, Peter speaks of this as well. But the joy that James speaks of here is more uh, similar, more akin to a happiness when we participate in sin. It's uh, the, the satisfaction, the pleasure that you might feel when you participate in sin. You know, it's, it's what, we, what is described in, in Hebrews 11 when it talks about sin being pleasurable for a season. It was fun for a season, but in the end it's death. That, that fun, that pleasure that exists there is the the type of of joy that James is commu- communicating here. So we should we should turn that joy into gloom, not a joy in Christ, but rather that celebration of sin, that happiness that uh, we might temporarily experience, the pleasure that we can find in sin. He says that should be turned into into gloom. It should be removed from us. And, and ultimately here in, in these last couple of verses, James's point is that he doesn't want us to have a casual attitude towards sin. His whole point in the chapter is that we want to be wholehearted in pursuit of Christ. We want to be like him, not just kind of sweeping sin under the rug. We should be serious about it. And he ends with this idea of joy uh, and not taking delight in sin as it's easy to do because it is fun for a season it is pleasurable for a season that's why we like to do it but when we contrast that with true christian joy the real joy that we see in in paul's description in that celebration of jesus when we realize our sins are forgiven in christ His point here is that he wants us to put off this pleasure of sin so that we might have true pleasure and true celebration and true joy in Christ. We can never have true Christian joy if we do not take sin seriously because true joy is rooted in Christ's defeat of sin. So you can't ever have what is truly truly joy for the Christian unless you're serious about it because true joy is wrapped up in celebrating what God has done for us in defeating sin. And so he tells us we should deal with our sin in a serious manner. We should be wretched and recognize that we're wretched and mourn and weep. Our laughter and delight over it should be turned to mourning our joy and our pleasure in sin should be turned to gloom and then that leads us back into verse 10 when we do that when we repent of sin 
we humble ourselves before the Lord. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. To humble yourself before the Lord, it means what he's been saying there. To recognize your own uh, brokenness before God. You're, you're broken, you're messed up, you're sinful. You acknowledge that you are in desperate need of God's help. You cannot do it without him. And you submit to his perfect will for your life. Jesus gave a parable to uh, some Pharisees who were standing around and questioning him. And he gave this, this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee would go to pray and, and he, would, he would stand and make this big deal about it. And he would, he would call out other people in his prayers. But the tax collector, it says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he, he, Jesus went on to explain, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what James is quoting here when he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. James is quoting from this parable here. The tax collector was the one who admitted that he was broken. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He, he was humble. And the one who is justified is not the Pharisee, but the one who was humble. And in that parable in that moment, as Jesus is speaking this to the religious leaders, he is exalting that humble man. He is exalting him there before them. And so when we try to exalt ourselves, we'll fail and we'll be condemned. We want to be humble. And so James wraps up in verse 11 and 12, speaking to us about how this our speech that gets us into these fights and quarrels, it really is a bigger deal because it reveals what's in our heart. It reveals that division in our heart. So now he goes back to addressing kind of this specific behavior, the thing that one of the things that is causing these fights. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So James says, don't speak evil against one another. In some translations, it says slander. But what he's saying here is don't speak against. Don't speak evil. And when he communicates that in the original text, it, it denotes a bunch of different kinds of evil speech, things like questioning legitimate authority, slandering someone in secret, bringing false accusations against uh, others. And so these things that they were doing, these, these things that they were speaking out as evil, they were stirring up, fighting, personal attacks, you know, these judgmental attitudes. And so James says, we shouldn't speak evil against one another. But the one that speaks evil against a brother 
or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. So James here, he implies that speaking evil against a brother is the same as judging a brother. They're, they're kind of one and the same there. He says, if you do this, you not only speak against a brother, but also against the law and you judge the law. When we criticize a fellow believer, when we speak evil against them, we place ourselves as one who is standing in judgment over them. And by judging them, by speaking evil towards someone, by putting ourselves in judgment over them, we fail to keep the royal law. Remember that from earlier in the book of James, the talking about the love command? We fail to keep the, the, the love command, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you're speaking evil against one another, when you're judging one another, you're esteeming yourself above another. You're looking at someone as if to say, I'm glad I'm not like that man, much like that Pharisee prays in that parable. Lord, thank you that I am not like that tax collector that I am not like a sinner. That's what we're doing, in effect, when we speak evil towards one another, when we judge one another. We place ourselves above them. And when James communicates this, he kind of gives us a contrast here. He, con- he contrasts uh, those who judge the law and those who keep the law. If you look at what he says there, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And then he goes on, but if you judge the law, you were not a doer of the law, but a judge. So you're either a doer or a judge is what he's communicating here. If you don't love your neighbor, you fail to do the law and it reveals what you think about the law. You set yourself above the law as a judge. If you're not participating in loving your neighbor and speaking kindly to your neighbor and using your tongue wisely, if you're starting these fights and quarrels, you, in turn, are somebody who sets yourself above the law because you're not keeping it. You're not being obedient to follow the law. And the failure to be obedient to the law communicates to the world and to other believers that you don't take it seriously, that it is not an authority in your life, that God's word is not an authority over you. And so when we claim to follow Christ, we have to humble ourselves, we have to repent before God, and that has to result in godly interactions with other people. That fruit has to be able to be witnessed And so when we're right with God, when we are found under the authority of God, it's going to show in the way that we treat other people. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Very applicable verse for what's going on in the church with James here. There's a lot of fighting and James says, if there's this fighting, if you don't love your brother, you really don't love God. And then in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so when we place ourselves, if you, if you want to be someone who speaks evil and judges your neighbor, when you place yourself as a judge over the law, your self-appointed authoritative position, it basically runs into a kind of dead end where you end up having to run into the fact that you are now not only placing yourself as a judge above others, but that you are placing yourself in the position of God, who is the only judge. He says there is only one lawgiver and judge, so you shouldn't be claiming to be the one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? This person who, who places himself as a judge is a fellow Christian, somebody who is a believer, who is pushing God aside and taking the role of the judge, which only belongs to God. Now, let's also be clear here about when it talks about judging, because he says, oh, you know, you're not to judge a brother. He's not talking about discernment here. He's not talking about, you know, inspecting the fruit of other believers in the body. We know because he says, he, he gives us, uh, breaks it down about what the judge should do. He's, he, he's thinking of, of judging in terms of determining the spiritual, you know, destiny of people. And we know because in verse 12 he says, there's one lawgiver and judge, and the job of the judge is to save and to destroy those are the options. It's not to find out if something, you know, to, to help people discern where they're at in their walks with the Lord. It's not to have, uh, you know, to use this proper discernment that we should have. But rather, it is for the purpose of being the ultimate and final judge. And so James says that we should not place ourselves in that position because that position belongs to the Lord. Romans 14, we'll end here. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? This is Paul speaking. Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he, Paul likens it. If you're trying to judge your brother, if you're trying to despise your brother? Why are you doing that? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God, not before your judgment seat. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So James says you shouldn't be judging others and you shouldn't be putting yourself in the way of another brother because you will also be judged. James is coming after those who have evil speech and those who use it as a way to condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God. He's using it to communicate that the way that you use your tongue You'll be judged by your words. We looked at that last week. That's what Jesus said. You'll be judged by your words. And so we want to use our words wisely. We don't want to be people who are 
fighting and quarreling out of our own selfish desires, out of our own selfish nature, out of our own self-centeredness, but rather we want to be found as those who are people who God gives grace to, those who are humble, those who are meek, those who are found as people who weep and lament and mourn over their sin, but have joy in Christ over the fact that he has defeated sin, that he has redeemed us and made us his own. Ultimately, James is getting at we should be wholehearted in our response to Christ, wanting us to repent from this divided heart but to find that purity of heart, that wholeness of heart. And that's only found through repentance. And that's what, you know, Jesus told us when he first came on the scene. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away. Turn away from your own selfishness, your own desires, your self-centeredness, your own passions, your own pleasure, those things have been crucified with Christ and put to death. And now we should have that fruit of the Spirit that marks the believer, that we would be able to love and serve one another, love and serve the brothers and sisters in the church, and demonstrate that so that all people will know that we belong to Jesus. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would work that within us that um, the Holy Spirit would um, manifest those gifts within us. Lord, we're thankful for your word. And, Lord, that you've given us through James an exhortation, Lord, to avoid um, unwise speech, Lord, to avoid selfish and um, desires, to avoid self-centeredness. Lord, and we're thankful that you've called us, Lord, to clean hands and a pure heart, Lord, we're even more thankful that you have enabled us to have that, Lord, not through our own work, but through the work of Christ upon the cross. Lord, we're thankful that we can be found washed and clean, that we are new creations. Lord, because of what Jesus has done, you've made all things new as a result of Christ's work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work within us to transform us, to remove, Lord, just the division in our hearts, Lord, the ways that the enemy would seek to creep in and uh, distract us to put the cares of the world in front of our eyes. Lord, we want to be singular in our pursuit of you. We want to be giving you priority, Lord. Lord, like the um, the, the old song, Lord, we want, we want to, to see the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, we want you to burn bright in our hearts and to be our singular passion. And so, Lord, give that to us. Work within us. Cause us to desire more of you. We love you. Amen.